If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. We're going we're gonna to be in the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. We'll be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. We're actually going to work our way down into chapter 6, so if that's uncomfortable for you, uh, just embrace it early on and we'll be okay in the end. Uh, those, those big numbers there aren't, aren't divinely inspired. They're there for our convenience. We're going we're gonna to break the barrier this morning a little bit. Uh, and just to give you a little context on where we are today, uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church there in Corinth, but he's also writing to all the churches in the, in the surrounding region. This is a church there in Corinth that he planted. It's a church that he cares deeply about. He, he knows them on a very personal level. It's a church that has seen some growth and even some, some outward signs of health, but it's a church that's had some problems, okay? There have been some divisions within that church. There have been some, uh, some misplaced uh, morals and, and ethical uh, issues there. There's been some, some strange things. It's a true church. It's not all perfect, okay? It's not a utopian society where everybody's kind of got it all figured out. They are just like us. They, they mess up all the time. They're... they're a body, of sanctify, or a body of believers being sanctified by the Holy Spirit in real space, in real time. And, and the reality is that at times that can be painful. Uh, the church there was founded during Paul's second missionary journey, so right around 50 to 52 A.D. And just for the sake of some biblical context, that's right in Acts 18. If you remember that story at all, that's right where Paul meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla to displace tent makers and forges this really just instant bond with them, begins to work with them, actually lives with them for a season. And we're told that during this part of Paul's life, the season of his life, that he could be found every Sabbath in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And really, okay, really, that's Paul in a nutshell. That kind of sums him up. He's, he's that guy who's going to do whatever it takes to testify to the unbelieving world that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. He'll go wherever people will listen, and honestly, he'll go wherever people don't want to listen. Paul's just that guy. He's the guy who will take a beating for the sake of, of testifying. He's going to tell of the wonder of God's grace in Christ. This is what he does. Uh, this is who he is. But, and, and this is big, that's not who he always was. And that's not what he always did. Paul was not always Paul. And that's where we're going to pick it up in this passage. Uh, right in the middle of Paul telling the church there in Corinth of this, of this glorious ministry that he and they have been called to. He, he's impressing upon them the sort of profound and even, even radical transformation that has taken place in his life. And he's beckoning them to remember that reality in their own lives. So let's, let's look at that together. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is true. We know that it is good. And we thank you for being gracious just to speak to us. Lord, we ask now that you would come. Lord, in all honesty, I pray that you would just move me aside. Don't don't let me be a hindrance to what you're trying to do today. And we rest fully on your grace, fully on your mercy. We just ask now that you would come and do your work amongst us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this is sort of an odd Sunday each year. Um, Maybe it doesn't feel that way to you, but for me, especially in thinking through this message, this is just an odd Sunday. Uh, It just feels different. It falls right after the biggest event of the year, right? We just experienced sort of the crescendo of the year. If if the year was a song, we we just hit the high mark. Everything has been building and building and building. We've had four weeks of of, of parties, of drop-ins, of gift exchanges with co-workers and friends. We've, we've had the Advent season to look for. We lit candles during church. That's, that's new and different. Uh, it's, it's just a different time of year. And then, all of a sudden, this past week, we, we were here, and, and, and we're singing of the peace of Christ coming into the world. We're holding candles in our hands, and then... And then I don't know how it works in your family, but after the Christmas Eve service for us, it's, it's nonstop. That's sort of like the marker. Christmas has arrived. When you start singing Christmas carols holding a candle in your hands, it's game on. And my kids know that, and, and my wife knows that, and everything after that is just, it's wild. Um, you can't sleep. You can't, you, your kids can't sleep. Your, your wife can't sleep. I'm pretending to be able to sleep because I don't want to be that dad. Um, It's just that time of year. We're all caught up in the anticipation of what's coming. It's all this built up energy and mystery and hope and anticipation. And then it comes. And and you know what that looks like. The living room is wrecked. The, The tree has gone from being a fixture in the house to just being in the way. My wife's already thrown ours out the back door. Um, People are running around taking pictures. You know, they're trying on new clothes, breaking out the new toys. You're looking for batteries. Um, that's pretty much a parent's job on Christmas morning. Find batteries. Um, the dog has no idea what's going on. It's just hiding under a blanket somewhere. This is, this is Christmas morning for us. And all of a sudden, we're going to move right into to New Year. And so right here on this Sunday, every year, we're at this, at this strange crossroads where we're where we're looking back at what we've just experienced, but also at the same time looking forward to what's coming. It's this weird tension that we live in during this this week between Christmas and New Year. And at least part of that tension is because to some degree, after this week, we will be, at least on on some little level, will be changed forever. You see, we're we're caught in this moment of looking back, back into this climactic moment and, and season of the life while, while simultaneously looking forward with all the hope, anticipation, and mystery that's attached to the coming of a new year. When Paul is writing this letter, 
He's writing to believers. Okay, he's writing to people who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, for their eternal life. They have embraced Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who would save his people from their sins. They are, they are people who have been changed. Okay, they've, they've been transformed. But just like us, just like, just like we know from our own lives, they don't always live as if that's true. And so it's into this tension that Paul is writing. He's writing into the tension of what we call the already and the not yet. Yes, he's writing to the redeemed, uh, to those who have been reconciled, to those who, who, who already belong to Christ. He's writing to them. That's, that's what they are already. But they're not yet fully sanctified. They, they have not yet entered into their final glorification. And this creates tension for the follower of Christ. So as we look at verse 17... And we read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And if we consider the weight of that, we might find ourselves saying yes and amen. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And then in the same breath asking, but what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that the old has passed away and the new has come? Because we know that sometimes it doesn't feel like the new has come. Oftentimes, I don't feel like a new creation. And so while I'm, while I'm hearing what Paul is saying, there are times, uh, j- just, just to be honest, that I have a hard time relating to it. And I think Paul gets that. Like, I, I think he really gets it. I, I don't think he's looking at the people of Corinth and thinking they're just morons who can't get it right. In this moment, he's really preaching to himself too, and so he gives us an example. This statement of verse 17, that the believers in new creation, comes right on the heels of Paul giving us an example, an example of what it means to live as a new creation in Christ. He said in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Okay, so this is an outward sign of the inward transformation that's taken place. This is... This change is not a natural byproduct of higher evolution, okay? It's not something that education or training or social conditioning can correct. It's not something that, it's, it's not something we can just fix. Even though the world would love for us to believe that we can just teach people enough, we can just condition them enough, and, and people will just sort of autocorrect. But anyone who has ever sent a text message, ever, knows that autocorrect doesn't always get it right. And in fact more often than not, gets it way wrong. This isn't a result of higher adaptation. This is a specific marker of a life transformed by the gospel. And what he's saying here is that we no longer assess people by what they look like, by what they possess. It's not about what someone can do for us. So issues of race, of gender, of nationality, of preferences of socioeconomic standing, those are no longer how we measure people. It's not about external human standards. And, and, and he's saying this uh, not in some sort of abstract or theoretical way. He's basing it on experience. He's, he's basing it on his own story. It was John Newton who said, Experience is the Lord's school. And they who are taught by him usually learn that they have no wisdom by the mistakes they make. And that they have no strength by the slips and falls they meet with. Paul has been to the Lord's school. 
He knows of his own mistakes, he, of, of his own slips and falls, and he's learned. And so he's throwing himself right in there with us. And he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Even though we did this, this is who we were, but it's not who we are today. And in the context of this passage, this, the statement in verse 16 really sounds like Paul's just in a moment of relief Because of the cross of Christ, he's been set free. He's been set free from the worldly bonds of comparison. That's one of the marks of of life as a new creation. There's freedom. There's freedom from the need to constantly compare yourself, your kids, your house, your car, your job, your school, your team, your church, to others. There's freedom to walk in grace and truth instead of fear and doubt. There's freedom from the need to be the best. There's freedom from the need to look at your neighbor and not see him as an image bearer of God. We're free now to love them instead of of seeing them as a means to make our life better. There's freedom. That means my identity is is not found in in how well my son hits a baseball or how well my, my daughter dances or how quickly my toddler learned how to walk. And I know I'm not the only person who has struggled with that in life. I'm free from that because of Christ. As a child of the living God, one of Christ, one who has Christ's name on me, my only boast is in the cross of Christ. It's in his victory. I'm no longer competing with my neighbor in the game of life. I'm free to encourage, free to support, free to help, free to serve, free to love my neighbor as myself. What does it mean to live as a new creation in Christ? It means we walk in freedom. And in that freedom, we find a second mark of life as a new creation. There's joy. There's joy. Freedom brings joy. This, this past summer, my, my family and I uh, went down to Edisto Beach uh, for vacation, and we decided to take a boat with us. Um, this was the first time we were doing that. My family likes to get out on the boat, likes to fish, likes to do all that stuff. So we were like, we're going to take it with us. The only catch was that the only vehicle that we have to tow said boat with is, is my little uh, Subaru station wagon. Um, we knew, based on internet research, that um, it was really going to be pushing the limits of this car to pull the boat down the road. Um, but we thought, what in the world? It would be an adventure. Um, so we loaded it up. Five people, all the necessary equipment for the baby, right? And, and at the, that point in time, he's like seven months old, so you have a lot of gear for babies. When they, you don't use any of it, but you have to bring it along. Um, we, we loaded up the bikes, we loaded up the food, the clothes, um, and we, we headed down the road. Now, a typical road trip for me is a, well, it's a competitive event, um, I don't know if you all feel this way, but ever since the use of GPS became sort of commonplace and the little lady in the GPS started telling me what time I should expect to arrive at my destination, my only goal on the road trip was to beat that time. Um, I mean, I, I want to get there safely, okay? I'm, I, I do. I, I want to get there safely. I have precious cargo with me and all that. But the reality um, is that now I'm trying to beat the GPS while also maintaining the safety of some people. So it's like playing hurt. I'm at a disadvantage, right? So I, I'm, I, I've, I've got the odds stacked against me. But that's the goal. Beat the GPS. I'm not proud of this. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a character trait I'm hoping to pass along, but it's one of those things I'm hoping God will grow me out of. 
on, on this particular trip, however, uh, there was something very, very different. Um, because I was testing the limits of the car and, and really didn't want to send a small boat careening down I-95 and have to answer for that, um, I, I hit the speed limit. I got in the right lane. I, I set the cruise control. And never once thought about trying to win the game. I was free from the need to win in that moment. And, and the end result is it ended up being the most peaceful car ride that I and probably my family has ever had. Um, if the car in front of me was going a little slower than I wanted it to be, no big deal. We're not in a hurry. Wreck up ahead, man, I hope they're okay. We're not in a rush. It was liberating. The people on the road were not a hindrance to me. They weren't in my way. They were just people on the road trying to get somewhere. And in the end, something that I typically don't enjoy at all actually became one of the most joyful and relaxing parts of our, vac- of our vacation. You see, freedom brings joy. Liberation brings joy. And the last mark of life as a new creation that I want us to see today is that there is healing. Again, in verse 17, we see that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in 18, we read, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So to be a new creation means to be reconciled to God. The way this word is used in this passage is really speaking in terms of relational healing. And so we need to resist the urge to understand uh, reconciliation simply in terms of restoration, like like we would think of an old piece of furniture. That's not what Paul is talking about here. You see, the thing that is being restored is not is not just something that's been scratched. It didn't just get dinged up on the way into the house. It's not weathered and in need of a touch-up. The relationship that Paul is talking about, the relationship between God and man, has been fractured beyond any sort of band-aid-like repair. This thing is broken. And so humanity is not in need of a mere ointment. It doesn't need a bandage. We're in need of a new genesis. And Paul unpacks this a little more for us in Romans 5, uh, beginning in verse 8, where we read, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what he's saying there is that God doesn't waste his time. He doesn't reconcile some and then neglect to save them. In Christ, reconciliation equals justification, and justification equals salvation. You you see, Jesus didn't die for some future version of you. He, He died for you while you were still a sinner. While you are a wreck, he doesn't look at you and say, go get your stuff together and then come and see me. Now, Christ died for you at your worst, dead in sin, bringing nothing but enmity to the table. And by his grace, through his mercy, he makes us new. That's what we read in Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then he says this, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This is what God does. 
And then over in Philippians 2, we, we see Paul expanding on this idea even, even further, even into the broader covenant community when he says, For he himself, this is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Having been washed with clean water, having been given a new heart, being blessed with the indwelling spirit, we are a new creation. And now the dividing wall has been broken down, not through our doing, not through our best efforts. In fact, it's really despite our best efforts that God has broken down the wall. And now we're, we're one body through the cross. The hostility has been killed and we don't regard people according to the flesh. And the active party in all the reconciling work, um, all of this work, just like at creation, is God alone. In the same way that God speaks and creates light or separates the waters and sets their limits, he works independently of anything or anyone. And in Christ beckons forth by his voice, by the word of his power and new creation. That's what verse 18 is saying. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Paul wants the church to understand that, he wants the church to understand that you didn't save you, that Paul didn't save you, that your pastor didn't save you, that your mom and dad didn't save you, but that God and God alone saves. Paul is passionate for his people to understand this. All this is from God, and he doesn't stop there. Verse 18 continues, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? It means that our trespasses are no longer counted against us. And it's not that God is forgetful. It's, it's not that God is senile and just can't remember what we did. It's not that he doesn't see us as we truly are. It's that he took our sin and he intentionally placed it upon a willing substitute. It means that while the wages of all our sin is the cup of God's wrath, Christ drank the fullness of that on the cross and now we stand justified, reconciled through his life. And this is, I mean, this is good news. Right? I mean, like, this is not just, this is the good news. This is the, this is the best news that could ever, that could ever be given, that could ever be heard, that could ever be received. That, that's what Paul says in verse 20. He says, therefore, that's an important word here. It's because we've been reconciled, because we've been reconciled, that we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, that he says, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us as those reconciled to God. Those who have been brought into, into the peace treaty that God has issued between himself and his people. Those who have been given freedom, those who have been given joy, those who have been given healing. We've also been given a new identity and we've been given a new purpose. 
And both of these, both the identity and the purpose, are summed up in that word ambassador. In terms of, in terms of identity, an ambassador is a representative. Okay, they don't, they don't speak by their own authority. They don't, they don't operate by their own power. They're representatives. And when we combine verses 19 and 20 and really look at that, we can begin to understand that we as Christians, that you and I, we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've all been called as ambassadors. This is who we are. We are ambassadors of the new covenant. We are heralds of the good news of great joy. The same good news and great joy that we just spent a month talking about. The same good news and great joy that the angel came and proclaimed to the shepherds in the field that to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is who we are. And again, Paul isn't saying this in some sort of abstract or ethereal way. In fact, it's very practical. It's a very pragmatic approach that he's employing here. The wording in the original language is not really ambassador in the sense of a noun. It's used here in the sense of a verb. It's as an activity. It's to act as an ambassador. You see, Paul understands that what you are is attested to by what you do. Perhaps we consider it this way. Um, Christ was our representative, not just in title, and not in word, but in deed. Christ was our representative before he physically came to earth. Yes, creator, Yes, part of the Godhead, but he was a promise. He was a promise all the way back in Genesis 3. He was a promise all the way throughout the Old Testament. He was a promise all the way through the 400 years of silence. He was a promise. By his life, by his life, he's the fulfillment of that divine promise. As our representative, he stood in our place. He owned all our sin, all of our mess. And his death on the cross Christ represented us by paying the penalty that we have earned with our sin. And what Paul is pointing to here is that in Christ's physical absence, now that he is gone, now that he is at the the right hand of the Father in heaven, now that he is there, he leaves us as his representatives. He is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And we, just like the Corinthian church, are his representatives, and we implore the word, that word implore, we beg them, be reconciled to God. As a new creation in Christ Jesus, this is our new identity. This is our new purpose, but it's the same invitation. It's the same good news. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. At this point, Paul is, Paul just can't help it. If you can imagine him sitting there, um, I don't know if he's at a desk or what. For all we know, he's sitting in a prison cell somewhere just thinking about when he's going to get out and start preaching the gospel. He's just that guy. And he's sitting there and he's, he's writing this letter and he's talking about Christ's substitutionary death. He's talked about the practical outworking of our union with Christ. He's reminded us of, that all of this is God's doing, that it's all his grace, all his mercy. He just told us what it means in the big, big picture to walk as a child of the living God as his ambassadors, as his agents of reconciliation. (laughs) And now, here in verse 21, we get this just summary statement. It's a a summary statement. It's one of those verses that I have written beside it in the margins of my Bible, the gospel. That's it, just the gospel right there. Almost every week I have someone ask me, what is the gospel? 
Now, we, we use that word, gospel, a lot. It's a very popular word in our circles. We use it a lot. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Paul's at the point in this letter where he just overflows with praise. He's about to explode. It's been building and building. This is a moment of sheer, unabashed, unrelenting doxology. And he writes, For our sake, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to read that again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. In just a couple of days, uh, Lord willing, we're going to celebrate the new year. We'll do this by getting together with family and friends, right? We're going to eat good food, probably blow up some stuff. This is still the South. We can't celebrate anything without blowing some stuff up. Um, we'll tell people a Happy New Year for the hyper-optimistic amongst us. We'll say Happy New Year's. I'm okay with that. And then just like that, we're going to be back to reality. We'll get back to work, back to our jobs, back to our schools, right? Back to normal. When Paul planted the church there in Corinth, they heard the gospel. They heard it. They even ascribed to it. They professed it. They claimed it as their own. But even in that, at least to some degree, after he left, they, they returned to their former lives. They carried on business as usual. And Paul, because of his love for them, hears of this. He hears of it. And he feared for them. He was afraid for them. And that's really why we have this letter. We have this profound glimpse of the pastor's heart for his people. And so following this moment of doxology, this, this moment of praise, he says in verse 6-1, working together with him, with Christ, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's saying, he's saying don't just hear it. Don't just agree with it. Don't just acknowledge it. God's interested in far more than your intellectual assent. He's saying, don't let this be in vain. And then he looks back at the prophet Isaiah, who talked about this, this coming restoration of Israel, of God's covenant people. And he says this, For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, look, look, now is the favorable time. Behold, see this, now is the day of salvation. Because Christ has taken our sin upon himself on the cross, we are free to live in him as a new creation, walking in the joy of our reconciliation and serving, well, serving as ambassadors of Christ by inviting others to be reconciled to God through the atoning sacrifice of our Savior. Don't just go back to business as usual. Just like we look back at Christmas and remember, we look forward to the coming year and we imagine we imagine what God will do with us. What he'll accomplish through his people. Through his ambassadors. This is that time of year where you need to dream big. You need to look into your scripture. You need to look into the Bible and go, God, what do you want to do with me in the coming year? I dare you to write those things down. 
I dare you to pray big prayers and then write them down. And then fall on your knees and pray that God, by his spirit, will empower that to happen. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now, right now, is the day of salvation. Let's all walk together in that promise. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing around us. We know that all of this is from you, that the reason we can stand here secure in you is because you've done it. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. God, it's your grace and your grace alone. And so we rest in you. God, I pray that as we, as we leave this place today, we won't be the same. It's one thing to come in apathetic. It's one thing to come in tired. It's one thing to come in indifferent. It's another thing to leave that way. God, I pray that you would renew us today. That you would send your spirit to do that. We can't, we can't preach that into people. We can't teach it into people. It's only something that your spirit can come and do. And we ask you to do that now. God, motivate us by your grace. Empower us through your mercy. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.